0: Welcome to State House Spotlights, your go-to podcast from the Excel and Ed in Action team. I'm Tom Green, one of your hosts who will guide you through the education bills and policy trends we're seeing across the country.
1: And I'm Ashley Mullins. As National Legislative Directors at Excel and Ed in Action, we oversee our organization's Ledge Affairs team, where we collaborate with state leaders and lawmakers and advocate for K-12 student-centered policies around the country. In this episode, we are going to give you a rundown of the notable bills we're seeing move this week. And then later we're gonna explore some states that are making an effort to ensure every child has the tools to read and succeed. In an era where it seems we don't see much bipartisanship in our state legislatures, one specific education policy is actually breaking the partisan gridlock and that is early literacy. More than 30 states have already adopted laws or are moving towards requiring districts to use a phonics-based method to teach reading. And we'll dig into this trend a bit more But first, Tom, why don't we take a quick look at what's moving across the states this week?
0: Absolutely. Well, as we talked about last week, it was National School Choice Week. And six states, Florida, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Mississippi, and Missouri, all advance bills to expand and improve educational opportunity and give parents more options for their kids. From open enrollment to public charter school expansion to private education choice programs, we saw a lot of activity. And of course, we saw a lot of celebration across the country. Just incredible to see teachers, students, parents, school leaders all celebrate school choice and the options that are available. And hopefully will become more available as state legislators move in this direction. But There were also math bills moving in several states, in Florida, Indiana, Kentucky, and Tennessee. We all saw the terrible PISA or international results on math recently, where the United States is still struggling in this area. We know math is critical for today's economy, and having those math skills really helps students have more opportunity. And so states are starting to take action, like we're going to talk today about early literacy. Uh, states are looking at math as well and how they can create comprehensive policies to support teachers and students who who struggle. And then artificial intelligence. This is uh, something that I think is going to help education. There are going to be some uh, potential risk with utilizing artificial intelligence, but several states uh, we have four states actually: Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee are moving bills to study AI, how to use it. How it can be beneficial and how to prevent against some risk, and this actually all started with uh, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin in his executive order that gave guidance and set up a task force on AI and how to how to study it and really have the state government leverage AI to be a benefit and create more efficiencies, but also recognize there's some challenges. And then just one note for the listeners, Governor Kay Ivey is going to give her state of the state on February 6th. So we expect that to focus on education. So hope you all tune into that and we'll certainly talk about it, but we're excited to hear what she has to say. But, you know, Ashley, going back to artificial intelligence, this is something I've been thinking about. It sounds like science fiction, but it's here and it's real. And what do you think about this? Like, where do you think states are going to go and how do you think it's going to play into education?
1: So first off, I'm excited. I think any time that something comes out that could expand horizons for students, give them new opportunities to learn, I think it's a good thing. And I think we're seeing educators who are excited by this technology and are already using it in the classroom. But I also think on the flip side, we're seeing with something new like this, where there's not a deep understanding about what it is or how it could impact education, you know, we also see kind of knee-jerk reactions to ban the use of it in schools, especially out of fear, I think, around, you know, cheating or plagiarizing and things of that nature. But I'm really excited to see the states taking steps to provide some guidance to schools and how to integrate this into education. You know, you mentioned Virginia, and I think Governor Yunkin deserves a lot of credit for picking off this conversation. He then followed up and signed another executive order just on the 18th. And so this is fresh off the presses and it does include guidelines for how to integrate AI into education. And so looking at that, they're looking at some guiding principles. They're looking at what a task force can continue to look at as they are advising their local school districts across the state. But I thought it was interesting that they put some guiding principles together and this is something that I think other states can learn from, right? So first, they're going to say, do no harm, right? They want to make sure that everything that is happening around AI is safeguarding our students and protecting against data privacy and things like that, prioritizing integrity. I think this one's important, augmenting, not replacing humans. It shouldn't replace human judgment in education, but, but it can enhance it for sure working in partnership with the state government, with local school districts, with institutions of higher ed, so that there is partnerships around this. And then their last one, I think, is also important, be constantly discerning and responsive to the continuous expansion of the capabilities of AI. You know, this is, while people have been working on this for a while, it's really only come into the public space recently. And so I think it's going to continue to grow and change. And that's certainly going to have an impact on education
0: yeah it's fascinating it's fascinating to think about the the power of this technology and its implications and yeah i think i think you're right states addressing it now and and getting their arms around it now it's 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 probably better you know i think back you know as a former teacher gosh the the ability to have a tool at your disposal as a teacher to help you with lesson planning with creating quizzes with creating tests i mean that would have probably saved me 10 15 hours a week as a teacher, especially as a new teacher where you're just, you know, just really trying to stay afloat and <laughs> you need all the support you can get. But it's amazing to see what this could do for teachers to help free up more time for them to focus on students, especially students who are struggling. We've seen some models out there where, you know, AI can help, help tutor students. We know one-on-one tutoring is highly effective. And so it would be incredible, especially to help students and their achievement, to have a, have a tutor that's available at all times and that can help students grow and learn more. But to your point, there's also a lot of fear out there around potential abuse and data privacy and plagiarism. So there's a lot of things to work around. But Also, kind of going back to math, it's interesting to see, I know we're going to talk about early literacy today, but we see these states move forward on math policy, and we have a lot of recommendations about how states should do that. But I think some of the challenge in our country is, one, yeah, maybe not having this uh, uh, strategic or comprehensive approach that is articulated at the state level, but also part of its culture. For whatever reason we have this idea in the United States that some kids are math kids or math students and some are not. I know that was prevalent when I was in high school. And I always thought I wasn't a math student. Were you a math student, Ashley?
1: No, no, I felt the same way you did, Tom. I I always just, I was not very good at math, which led to me not enjoying it. And so I just chalked it up to I'm just not good at math. I'm not good at numbers. I was good at things in the English space or social studies. And so I think that's what I gravitated towards, but I think you're right. It is sometimes in our society okay to say I'm not a math kid. Meanwhile, we would never say, "Oh, I can't read." <laughs> right? I'm I'm not a reading kid. And right. so I think we need to change the discussion there too around math.
0: Yeah, I think it just boils down to hard work. It's like anything, it takes hard work to master something, and math is challenging and I think we need to shift the culture to say that we all can be math kids or all can be math students, but some of us just may have to work a little harder and kind of build that skill set. It just takes some time. So I'm hopeful we can shift that because math is just so critical for our economy, for workforce preparation, and other countries are outpacing us in math. And it's scary to think about if our students aren't prepared and they're not getting what they need to, to be successful, then we're not going to be prepared for the economy and we're going to be less competitive as a country. So I'm hopeful we as advocates can work with states to to change the culture, but also change the policy.
1: Well, to our listeners, consider that a tease for next week because we're going to dive a little bit deeper into math. And there are states that have already passed math policies and several that are moving them this year. And so we're excited to dive deeper into that. But let's jump into our topic of the day, which is so important. In a world often characterized by political polarization, it's really refreshing for us to witness a growing trend of bipartisanship around literacy policy. I feel like literacy has finally become one of those policies where research and evidence is what wins the day and lawmakers from both sides of the aisle are finding common ground. And so I think it's good for us to jump into what it is about these policies that are bringing our parties together. And I think first, we all have to agree on the problem. According to the 2022 NAEP results, which is the National Assessment of Educational Progress, our apples to apples comparison from state to state, two-thirds, two-thirds of American fourth graders are not scoring proficient in reading. And that's really concerning because all other learning is based on your ability to read. And so that's really troubling.
0: Yeah. And the data are undeniable You know about the problem and the solution, I think. And so typically on the solution side, we can all agree on the problem, but typically when it comes to solutions, that's where you see the political parties go their separate ways. But I think in this case, around early literacy, at least at this point in time, we're seeing agreement and true bipartisanship. And I think it's refreshing. And I think once we know that we can do better, we do better, and we, you know, act. And I think it's taken a while, though, to get here. There, there have been these reading wars over the past several decades where you had two different camps of thought on how to teach kids to read. In one camp, for a really long time, you had this thought where you teach kids to read by helping them guess or look at the context clues, look at the pictures, figure out how the word fits in. To the context, in this method called 3 queuing, which is kind of part of this whole language approach, just doesn't work. It's ineffective.
1: It actually creates poor readers. I mean, it sets kids up to not know how to read.
0: Exactly. And you get a lot of curriculum, you get a lot of books sold, you get teachers bought into this idea, and it just hasn't been effective. Then there's been this other camp, this other fault, where we should have kids break down the word, sound the word out, or decode the word. And this is all grounded in what's called the science of reading. And this camp takes an evidence-based approach to teaching and learning that's backed by cognitive science, linguistics, and neuroscience. It emphasizes systematic phonics instruction, phonemic awareness, vocabulary, comprehension, fluency. And with this method, kids are truly decoding. Sounding out words and building their vocabulary from there. And so we've had these two divergent beliefs on how to teach kids to read, but we're starting to see this momentum and shift towards the science of reading, phonics, decoding, because we know it works. We see the research, we see states taking action. I think in previous episodes, we talked about states like Florida in 2002 and then Mississippi following Florida's lead. And we've seen incredible results from both states because what they did was they created a comprehensive early literacy policy where you are assessing students to see where they struggle specifically. You develop and tailor interventions to their unique learning needs. You develop reading plans for them, individualized reading plans. You notify the parent. I think that's important. You're bringing the parent in as a partner and working with them as a teacher to help students while they're at home to continue the process of, of learning to read because there are different things that parents can do to support their kids outside of school. You have progress monitoring. You see how the interventions are working and seeing how kids are making up some of those areas of deficiency. And then, and this is debatable, we'll talk about this later, but in third grade, you assess kids to see if they're able to move on to fourth grade. And we believe that you should give kids more time for promotion if they're unprepared because the learning is much more challenging in fourth grade and beyond if you're unable to read. And so, you know, the this solution is, is producing results, and we know that we've got to ensure kids can read by third grade. The research are very clear about that. The connection between the ability to read and a person's opportunities in life and life outcomes are clear. And I think we can all agree that we want better for our kids and we have proven tools and policies to get it right and to make progress. But, you know, as everything when it comes to policymaking, you also have politics. And I think historically you've seen Republicans champion phonics. And I think that's why you saw Republican or red states kind of take the lead on this. But thankfully, we're moving away from that partisan view. And we're seeing both Republicans and Democrats embracing this and moving forward in the right direction. So, I think that's exciting. So so Ashley, what have the states been doing to improve early literacy? And where are they now with literacy legislation? Are we seeing bipartisanship, truly?
1: We are, and I'm really excited about it. So I think it's important to first talk about what we're seeing in terms of policy. And so most comprehensive policies that states are either adopting or considering are grounded in four main principles. Supports for teachers, so making sure teachers are actually trained and have the tools that they need to be able to teach students according to the science. We want to make sure that we're screening students and notifying parents of reading difficulties and getting their buy-in. And then from that, right, we need to change instruction and intervention and do those aligned with the science so that those struggling readers have a chance to catch up. And then last, and this is where they're, you know, I think we'll talk about this a little bit later, Tom, there's still some contention around, giving students more time prior to promoting them out of third grade if they are indeed struggling. But those are the things that we're seeing states tackle. But more recently, we're also seeing states take a hard line approach against the 3 queuing method that you talked about that actually creates poor readers and does not teach kids how to decode words. And so in 2021, Arkansas was the first state to ban Three queuing from reading instruction, and then Louisiana actually followed them when with its three queuing ban in the next year, 2022.
0: Yeah, and quick shout out to Arkansas Representative Keith Brooks. He serves as vice chair of the House Education Committee. It was his leadership in 2021 that raised awareness about this ineffective instructional approach called three queuing, and it was his personal advocacy, like. He has a kid who struggled to read and just wasn't getting what they needed from schools. And so I think he like moved around to different schools and tried different programs and different curriculums. And he learned a lot about the reading war and the different approaches to teaching reading. And he found that phonics, decoding, and the science of reading helped his kid. And he advocated for this ban, the first state to ban it. uh, And it passed. And so, you know, all these other states are following suit. And it all started with a parent in the legislature advocating for what was best for, for his kid.
1: Never underestimate a parent who wants to advocate for their kid. And I'm so glad that that, you know, translated into his legislative advocacy, because now other states are actually taking a look at that and following suit, which is really exciting. So leaders in eight states took action during the 2023 legislative session to include an outright ban on 3Qing. Florida, Indiana, North Carolina, Ohio, South Carolina, Texas, West Virginia and Wisconsin all banned the practice, required its elimination from school curricula. And then I would say a couple of states took it even further, right? Because there's two sides of this coin. It's it's the curriculum that kids are exposed to in school, but it's also how we are preparing our teachers to teach. And so Florida, North Carolina, Texas and Wisconsin also banned Three queuing from their teacher prep programs, which is really, really critical. And I think we'll start to see more states do that. So to date, we have 10 states that have banned three queuing in favor of instruction and curriculum aligned with the science of reading. And then those four states that have banned three queuing from teacher prep programs. And I think we'll start to see more movement there as these policies continue to see momentum. But what's also really exciting to me is that there are lots of governors that are setting ambitious goals. Around early literacy this year in 2024. Tom, what have you seen?
0: Yeah, we've seen a lot of longtime red states highlighting early literacy and making it a priority. And yeah, it's important for governors to make this a priority for their administration because we know when governors use their bully pulpit, they're able to raise awareness, bring people together, and push solutions forward in a more effective way. And so it was good to see in Idaho, Governor Brad Little continue to make early literacy and improving early literacy rates, a priority for his administration. He's been a longtime supporter of this, even before he was governor, when he served as lieutenant governor. The Idaho State Superintendent, Debbie Critchfield, she's made this a priority, and we expect to see legislation from her department. In Indiana, Governor Eric Holcomb expressed the need to improve third grade reading proficiency. There are bills in the legislature that we're working on and supporting, and you know, it's really good to see a state that is strengthening their third grade retention policy because we know in implementation, this is one area that can get um, challenging because when you're holding kids back, you can see a push to to lower the bar and let them move on. And I, I know it's difficult, but I think in the long run, it's going to help help students more if they get that additional time to be promoted and get that additional support. And so it's great to see Indiana raising the bar, but also providing those supports and, and interventions and giving kids what they need uh, to be successful. But really appreciate uh, the strong leadership there. In Iowa, we've talked a lot about uh, Governor Kim Reynolds and her strong leadership on parental choice, but she's also focused on reading and passing a comprehensive policy this session that is grounded in the science of reading, that bans 3 queuing that provides teachers with that needed professional development And so uh, we're excited to see her continue the momentum in education and continue to tackle the, the system from multiple angles. And also in South Carolina, Governor Henry McMaster has made early literacy a priority and we intend to see more legislation there. So a lot of good momentum in red states.
1: That's exciting. But governors in longtime blue states are also setting ambitious early literacy goals. And I'm really excited because they're proving that this is not a partisan issue. Research and science is winning the day here. Massachusetts Governor Mara Healy set a goal for her state to be the first in the nation for early literacy, so she's going to have some competition. All these states are are getting pretty competitive. She emphasized evidence-based literacy materials in schools and a comprehensive approach to teacher professional development in early literacy, and she is proposing $30 million this year in her budget proposal to support those efforts. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy prioritized literacy and mentioned forthcoming proposals in his state to ensure students are taught the fundamentals aligned to the science of reading. We saw New Mexico Governor Lujan Grisham set a goal to double down and supercharge early literacy efforts, her words, calling for significant funding to establish a statewide literacy institute and a free summer literacy program aimed at ensuring 10,000 students achieve grade level reading proficiency, which is exciting. And then in New York, we had Governor Kathy Hochul highlighting her administration's intention to propose $10 million to train teachers in evidence-based literacy practices. And she's also urging districts to adopt high-quality instructional materials aligned to the science. New York City already made this move. And so we're excited to see the state also highlighting this, which is cool to see.
0: Yeah, that is incredible. And again, just the focus of this episode, bipartisanship. It's it's so refreshing. <laughs> Also, just this week, six states Arizona, Florida, Hawaii, Indiana, South Carolina, and Virginia are moving 10 early literacy bills, which is good news. And, you know, we've been upbeat all episode about the incredible progress happening in early literacy, and most of these bills are really good. But Arizona's bills, from our perspective, are not good. They take steps backward. One bill, would remove the requirement for high-performing school districts from submitting literacy plans that articulate how these districts are helping struggling readers with targeted interventions and helping them improve. And the problem is that not all school districts are helping 100% of students read on grade level. There are still students, even in what are considered quote-unquote high-performing schools, that struggle. And so by removing the requirement in law that these school districts don't have to participate and don't have to submit these plans. The fear is it'll incentivize less of a focus on every student and more students will fall through the cracks. So we're not excited about that bill. Uh, We don't think it's, it's a good one. And it actually takes a step backward. There's another bill that just dropped in Arizona, I believe last night, was Senate Bill 1465, and this bill would remove the requirement for elementary school teachers from being certified in the science of reading. And, and we know, right, Ashley, we've talked about this, like teachers having the tools and skills that are grounded in research to help students be successful and learn to read is the critical ingredient, right? Like to have a teacher in the classroom that is prepared is a critical ingredient to help students. And when you take away the requirement for teachers to be certified in the science of reading, you're doing them a disservice.
1: Yep, I think so too. You know, Tom, in all of these debates that we're seeing across the states, the most important part of this is we're not blaming our teachers, right? We're not not blaming the teachers in the classroom for what they didn't know and for how they were previously trained. But now that we know backed by years of science and understanding about how the brain acquires language and literacy, to back away from that and to not give teachers the tools that they need would just be so sad because the teachers need that support, they need to be certified, they need to be trained so that they can help our students. And so, you know, to see Arizona taking a step back on that is really troubling, especially as other states are moving forward. Well, all the states that we've mentioned today, what they all have in common is that their early literacy goals or the active bills that are moving are enjoying bipartisan support, which is really exciting. But there are always some disagreements and challenges to address along the way, of course. But we continue to have high hopes. But Tom, why don't we jump into some of those challenges that we face? Because our listeners are probably saying, all right, you know, we have the science of reading, sounds like a no-brainer, bipartisan support what's the catch? And we know from years of advocacy in this space that there are sticky issues still to be worked out. And so, Tom, what are some of the potential pitfalls for, for early literacy legislation that we've seen and how have states overcome them?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I think one area is you have this pushback around mandates when it comes to state policy. And so when you look at early literacy legislation, especially one that is comprehensive and provides a lot of parameters for school districts. Some legislators don't like any sort of mandates. And so I think we're seeing that, as I mentioned, in Arizona, where you've had these mandates and policy for a number of years, you're starting to see pushback against those. And so I think that's one area. And I think, actually you have an example in New Hampshire. I think there's some concern about mandates there as well.
1: I can actually give you a number of examples about this argument because we've seen it. But what's interesting is we've seen this same argument in both R and D states, but then we've also seen the flip side. So yeah, so you mentioned New Hampshire, that's the live free or die state, right? And so they really, really value local control, probably more so than any other state in the nation. And both R's and D's up there, you know, around the legislation that they have we're saying, is this the right role of the state to uh, to mandate this or give schools more guidance? But here's the critical piece, Tom. If we do not have the state coming up with a list and doing the due diligence to make sure that curriculum and screeners are based in evidence, then we're actually creating more work for our local school districts to have to go through this and figure out if these curriculums are actually evidence based or if they're just saying they're evidence based. So I view this the state has an important role to play to take some of the burden off of our local school districts and make it easier for them to sort through what's actually grounded in the science. You know, we're having the same debate here in my home state of Pennsylvania about should the state be putting a list out or should it just be guidance? I mean, we fully believe that there should be a list and that that curriculum should be adopted from that list to make sure that it's not the Wild West. But on the flip side, there have been states that have passed these bills that are doing this. And, you know, two states come to mind, Connecticut passed their right to read law a couple of sessions ago, D-led state, lots of bipartisanship around that. And then I also think about Delaware that just passed their law about two sessions ago, and they're requiring a list to be developed. And so we're not taking away the local school district's ability to adopt curriculum, but we are giving them guidelines and parameters and a list to choose from. And I should say that the states that have been successful at doing this, there is a transparent rubric for how things end up on that list. It's not just one person sitting in a cubicle saying, this is the list of curriculum that schools can can adopt from. And then one thing that was cool about Delaware's law is it allowed for a local pathway to come to the State Department and say, look, I think the curriculum that we've either developed or are using is aligned to the evidence. And here's, you know, the evidence to support that. And so there is a way for local school districts to still weigh in on this process. And so I think that's really important too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've seen the results from states that do this well, and we mentioned it before. And so it's also a return on investment conversation, right? Like. As state legislators, as governors, you want to ensure that the taxpayers are getting a return on investment. And we've seen states that adopt these policies, seeing progress. You're only going to increase your return on investment by helping kids be able to read so that they don't drop out of high school, so they don't go on welfare, so they don't commit crimes and go to prison. And I think these should be more characterized as parameters and guidance because there there is still flexibility and power at the local level to teach kids, but the state's providing some parameters. And uh, we know it works and we know it provides a return on investment. And so that is an interesting one that can be sticky. And the other topic is funding. And so we'll get this pushback in some states, especially among conservative uh, lawmakers, on funding And I think, you know, some of their arguments are, well, this is the job, right? To teach kids to read, that's the job of the school district. They should use the money that they currently have to do that. How do you push back on that and talk about funding, Ashley?
1: So, you know, I think it's important. Some states have started this work by reprioritizing funding that they're currently spending. Florida was a good example when they first passed their law. Their number one directive was... You know, for the state to reprioritize existing funding that can be used for that. But that's not always possible um, at the state level. And so we've seen a lot of governors take the lead here in their budget proposals to support this by putting funding behind it. You know, last year we saw Ohio take this approach. It does cost money for our local school districts to shift curriculum, especially depending on, you know, if they recently purchased it and they're going to make another shift pretty quickly. And beyond just the shifting of curriculum and paying for that, teachers, again, have to be trained, not just in the science of reading, but there also has to be professional development on the new curriculum. And so that is an added cost to local school districts to make sure that the teachers have the supports they need. And so that's what we're seeing at the state level in terms of these budget proposals. Ohio did it last year where they earmarked you know, certain amounts of money for teacher training, Uh, for grants to local school districts to shift to the science of reading and curriculum grounded in that. And that's what we're seeing in those budget proposals again this year too. And so I think it just, it helps, right? If you're not providing funding, there's going to be a difficulty in the negotiations. But if you're providing funding at the state level to support some of this, it does grease the wheels for the policy side of things.
0: Yeah, it is. It's amazing how that is helpful politically when you're able to put additional funding behind these efforts. And, you know, states spend all this money on a lot of different programs. I think we would argue again, this this one grounded in research, grounded in results, deserves that conversation. You know, we're seeing this in Georgia around literacy coaches. That's gonna cost the state, and Governor Kemp has put money forward in his budget to provide literacy coaches, which, you know, kind of going back to the mandate conversation, like providing professional development for teachers only helps support teachers and gives them the tools that they need they feel prepared and they're able to serve students better literacy coaches also help teachers and you know they provide capacity and extra set of hands to support teachers as they are trying to target these interventions and so that costs money as well and we're seeing states both blue and red um, invest Uh, and we've seen again big return on those investments when teachers have the supports they need, both from literacy coaches and professional development. And I guess the other topic that is pretty controversial, and we do see a divide between Republican led states and Democratic led states around retention in third grade or what we call a third grade reading gate or giving students more time for promotion. Ashley, what are your thoughts about that and what have you heard from state leaders on that issue? You work in a lot of blue states.
1: Yep, I do. And and quite honestly, we're not seeing a lot on the retention in the states that we've highlighted because those states are really prioritizing the teacher training side of things, screening for struggling readers, and interventions grounded in the science. Now, you know, we do know that third grade into fourth grade is the gate, right? That's when kids do transition from learning how to read to using those reading skills to learn other things. And so for us, it continues to be an important part of a comprehensive approach. But I also think it's important to note that retention is never meant to be a check on the student. For us, it's a check on the system. If you have a truly comprehensive approach that begins in kindergarten, you're continually screening students to make sure that they don't have reading difficulties, you're identifying the ones that do, you're providing them with the quality interventions. By the time that they get to third grade, those students that are up for retention are those that are truly struggling and truly do need more time before they're promoted. And so I think some of it is educating folks about that and that retention isn't just supposed to be at the end of third grade, it's only a third grade teacher's responsibility. You know, that's why we don't advocate for retention on its own, it has to be used. As a part of a comprehensive approach from K to three. And so I think that's difficult to share with folks and for folks to grasp. And then I also think we're seeing some states just leave that up to the locals rather than take a stand at the state level, which does make it a bit difficult, right? Because then the locals have discretion. And then they might not, you know, be giving students more time because then they're getting pressure from parents and the like. And so I think it's important that there are state discussions around this. And we are seeing some states even go stronger on retention, right?
0: Yeah. And they've certainly are trying to raise the bar there, which I think is incredibly important. Retention in third grade or what's called third grade reading gate, it sends a signal to the system that... We've got to prepare kids by this point in time. And we know that governors and legislators get pushback after states have passed these retention policies. We've seen it. Florida, Governor Bush in 2002, with his effort to pass a comprehensive early literacy policy, we know in that legislation there wasn't much delay for when they held kids back. Some states will say, you know, in three years, the retention component will kick in in third grade or in four years, the retention component will kick in. But but Florida didn't waste any time and said, you know, it's going to go into effect pretty quickly, almost immediately. And we know that a lot of students were identified for retention, and Governor Bush got a lot of pushback to try to change that policy to go back and And lower the bar and uh, and to push kids through, and he refused. He stood strong, and that's why I think it's important for state leaders to, once they pass these policies, to stand strong. Because what we saw in Florida are these incredible results. In the immediate term, there were a lot of concerns and fear and worry, and we also hear this argument about self-esteem, where you're hurting a kid's self-esteem if you hold them back. But I think we would argue you're going to hurt their self-esteem in the long run
1: if they can't read.
0: Right. If you're promoting them and they're unable to read. Uh, You know, I shared a story about being a high school teacher and getting a student who struggled to read in high school. His self-esteem was not high. He did not have a high self-esteem. And it's because he is just not prepared for high school level work because he got promoted year after year. And so I think, you know, this policy sends a signal to the system to say we mean business. Kids need to be prepared by this point in time to be good readers. We're going to provide you a lot of support, provide you extra funding, provide you professional development, literacy coaches, bring parents in. You know, this will be an all of the above effort, but by this point in time, kids should learn to read. Also, I think it's teacher friendly for the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, you know, the the teachers down the line who have a lot to cover and probably aren't as prepared to teach reading. I know we talked in previous episodes, uh, the state of Virginia has passed an adolescent early literacy policy or a policy to help teachers grades four through eight identify and help kids read, which is good, but it still takes time away from the content that they have to cover for that grade level. So I think it's teacher friendly. And then it also takes a lot of strong leadership. Like I mentioned, Governor Bush, also in Tennessee, we saw the same concerns pop up in town halls across the state that legislators held about retention there, and Governor Billy stood strong. They made a couple of adjustments to the policy, but they were minor, and I think we're going to see incredible results from that state because they're staying the course. So finally, I'd like to talk about the research. There have been a lot of researchers who've looked at Florida and Mississippi's retention policy as part of their early literacy laws, and the kids who were retained actually outperformed their peers in the long run. Because they got those additional supports, they got those additional interventions, and they were given extra time to catch up, and they actually outperformed in the long run. So there's a case to be made for retention. It's difficult, and you're going to need a lot of political leadership, but I think in the long run, it's better, and we know it's effective.
1: So I think the moral of the story here is comprehensive approaches are really, really important, and there are ways to grease the wheels, so to speak, politically. You need to pony up some funding to support these policies, and you need to make sure that the locals feel like they have some flexibility, even though we are making sure that they are adopting curriculum that is grounded in the science. And so that's what we're seeing across the states. There is so much to share, and this is such a critical topic in education. So thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Statehouse Spotlights and sticking with us on this really important topic. We can keep this conversation going around early literacy in your communities and on social media. You can share using the hashtag State House Spotlights.
0: And you can engage with our team at Excel and Ed in Action on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and X. Please give our podcast a review and subscribe so you can always be the first to know about new episodes. Thank you for joining us today. And until next time, take care.